listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome Daryl J. McLeod to read from his new memoir, Pia Cow, Reclaiming Cree Dignity, and to talk to me about it. Before I introduce him, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing, and you can always shop online 24-7 at www.skylightbooks.com. Daryl J. McLeod is the author of Pia Cow and Mama Scotch, which received the Governor General's Literary Award for nonfiction. He is Cree from Treaty 8 territory in Northern Alberta. Before deciding to pursue writing in his retirement, McLeod was a chief negotiator of land claims for the federal government and executive director of education and international affairs with the Assembly of First Nations. He holds degrees in French literature and education from the University of British Columbia and he lives in Sook, British Columbia. Thank you for being here today, Daryl. Oh, thank you for hosting and uh, chatting with me. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. Did you want to start by reading a little something from Pia Cow for us? Sure. I'm just going to start with uh, my own intro of myself in, in Cree, which uh, I always do in our tradition. So, Daryl is Pia Cow. So, Wahio Tinia, Amiskwachi Waskahikeno Tinia, Wurthadora Negawi, Sunny Clifford Nokawi. So I just uh, told you where I'm from, and my mother's name, my father's name, that's uh, what we always do. Yeah. Thank you for that. So I'm going to read uh, to you from just a, a, a wee bit from the last chapter of Diagao. Um, it's called Kichigami, and um, which um, sort of means big water. Um, so in this section of the book, uh, this section, the last chapter was actually based on two amazing dreams that I had. Um, and they were the type of dreams that you have to get up and, and write down before you forget. And uh, so in this section, um, all of my family, I think this dream was oddly inspired by Gabriel Marquez's book, Ten Anos of Solitude, 100 Years of Solitude. Um, and I think that book gave my, my, my brain, although dreams don't need permission to do anything, uh, permission to imagine that all of my relatives um, for the last that had lived for the last 200 years came to visit. So I was having a birthday, and I would have been having the birthday having the birthday alone that year. But in my dream, the night before my birthday, all of my relatives came to visit, and they were all gathered. I have a little acreage here by the Salish Sea, um, and across from the Olympic Mountains, actually. Uh, very close to, to the U.S. And uh, so my relatives all came and we were all sitting around talking in, in a blend of Cree and English with my, from my 
mother's generation up, uh, they spoke Greek fluently, and my grandparents' generation up only spoke Greek in English. So um, there's some translating going on, and uh, but a lot of uh, discussion. So Kokum means grandmother in Greek. So Kokum, uh, of course, was here. Kokum cleared her throat and continued. Once the Muniawaks, Muniawaks means the white people. Once the Muniawaks outnumbered us, they tore apart our culture one piece at a time, outlawed powwows and gatherings, our form of government, took our kids away when they were still really small and taught them English. They brought French-speaking nuns and priests to teach it to them, along with their religion. They hardly spoke English, those people, and never used it between themselves, spoke Francais, forced us to end our seasonal migration from the northern bush to the Rocky Mountains, fed us whiskey till it ruined us. A real bad dream, too bad to be true. She glanced around the room. We didn't have no heaven or hell before they, they came, and we weren't ashamed of our own nakedness. We enjoyed sex and talked about it freely. We didn't hide it away in darkness, and we didn't have BD. Their men brought that too. We ate good. Nobody was fat or had diabetes, and we knew how to laugh, a good belly laugh that healed us and kept us going. Then there was quiet. I remembered this type of silence when we were content just to be together and sit there happy with life. After a while, Mushum spoke to Mother in Cree. She turned to me. He wants to tell you, he wants you to tell us about your travels, my man. I told him that you have traveled to many places. I didn't know where to start, so I began with Three Sisters Mountains at Canmore, near Banff National Park. How I traveled, traveled to them at the age of 10. They'd become my surrogate grandmothers. Mushum know there were Cree names for those mountains. Then the beauty of British Columbia. I couldn't settle on one place, so I described the other rocky and coastal mountains. I loved the waterfalls that adorned them like diamond necklaces, rivers, streams, mineral hot springs, lakes and oceans, magnificent forests of cedar and spruce. I told my family how nature had healed me and given me new vigor right there at my little house near Souk. I told them about Mexico, the jungle, warm ocean, masses of cinnamon-colored faces, mangoes and coconuts, the Huichol people. During the spring and fall equinoxes, the setting sun turned the shadow on the steps of Chichen Itza into an illusion of a Mayan deity, a feathered serpent, slithering down its banister. The Aztecs called that same de deity Quetzalcoatl, god of wind and rain, of knowledge and learning. I described how the Mapuche and other peoples of Argentina had welcomed me, shared their ceremonies and feasts. Muslim turned to mother, shook his head, nodded in my direction and said, Ma, he can't believe you did all those travels alone, son. You took our spirit to all those places alone. I'm so glad you chose that chapter to read and it wasn't going to be my first discussion point but I think I'll I think I'll start here now was about how Piakau in Cree is one who walks alone and although these chapters of your life and your career that this book focuses on were really spent alone I noticed the the through line of all of the family and ancestors that were with you and visiting you throughout these chapters 
of your life at this time. And part of me felt like you weren't quite alone in many ways. And maybe that's a, maybe that's reading into it or your realization after the fact, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Could you just repeat the, the uh, one sec, you broke up a little bit there. Yeah, just that uh, even though Pia Cow translates to the one who walks alone, right? you didn't seem to be alone through a lot of these, this chapter of your life. And maybe that's something that you realized after the fact, after a lot of these dreams occurred, but I noticed that through line and that dichotomy there. I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Right. Well, this may sound funny, um, um, but alone, I guess, is a relative term. Um, and I'm not trying to play on words there either, but um, compared to uh, how I would have lived had our life not be disrupted, where I'm from, I say that colonization was rapid and brutal and really disrupted our extended family and nuclear family and individual lives. So um, when I was a child, a wee child, a toddler, uh, I lived in a community that was just made up of my, my relations, my people. And we were always surrounded by, by warm, loving, brown faces. And, um, but that community was, uh, we were forced to relocate, so it was disrupted. And then, you know, um, in my, the disruption and um, trauma caused, um, as that resulted from the disruption, really destroyed my immediate family. So I've had so many deaths in my family that uh, I often feel alone. One of my closest people was uh, my sister, my oldest sister, Debbie, who I write about in Mama Scotch. And um, she passed away fairly young, tragically. And um, so did two of my other siblings pass away at fairly young ages. And normally um, my house, <laughs> if this <laughs> If this was a, a normal situation uh, for my family, there would be all kinds of kids running around right now, yeah. disrupting my conversation and making noise. And I have to say, <laughs> be quiet. Uh, why are we go outside? <laughs> that kind of thing. But here I am alone. And I have to say, I love it. Solitude is a real big part of Cree culture. Yeah. Uh, elders would often go into the woods on their own, uh, when, both women and men. Women would go uh, to their camp by themselves for a month to three months at a time in the summertime and they would of course take the rifle and all of the equipment they had to for hunting and uh, sustenance that kind of thing but um so it's it's a mixed bag and um i would have been alone a lot of deliberately and by choice uh traditionally in my traditional culture uh unfortunately in this phase of my life and for the last you know many of my adult years I, I have have been alone I've lived alone I haven't been in in a successful loving relationship for for um, many reasons and um, I do so many things alone I do probably probably 60% of the activities in my life alone and um, there are a whole bunch of reasons for that and as I've said in other interviews it didn't didn't mean that I wasn't accompanied by loving people and that I wasn't loved because I'm very loved. I'm very fortunate more now than ever that people have gotten to know me and I've reconnected with so many people from different stages of my life uh, since the release of Mama, my book Mama Scotch right from grade school from primary school grade one 
to grade nine to my university days. I free and actually two weeks ago, uh, a man I taught grade four to, uh, thirty some years ago, <laughs> came to visit me, and we're going to actually have a wonderful reunion uh, at the end of August of that class I taught grade four to all those years ago. So you know, it's it's a mixed thing. It's just. Um, there is a there is a sadness in my current solitude, um, but I I do experience a lot of love and and support for sure. And the on the topic of re engaging with people from the past and reconnecting, um, a part of the book that I found at least connected to me, and I felt like it was a very universal thing, maybe happening right now, but always happening was at the very beginning when you said, why was I making this drastic change in my life? Uh, was I trying to rebuild my connection with Cree culture after losing my only bridge to it, my mother? Or was I trying to get back to my roots or simply more escapism? And I feel like that's something a lot of people are constantly trying to do. And especially now as people try and understand their cultures and where they came from so that we can stop appropriating other cultures, especially yours. and find out what our own roots are and just understanding the reasoning behind that. Is it an escapism? Are we trying to get away from ourselves? Or are we trying to find out more about who we are? Yeah, I, I, I know there are a lot of, in Mama Scotch as well as Pia Gao, there are a lot of themes that were universal type themes that many people relate to. And I had people, you know, teens, um, early teens, late teens, people in their 30s, 40s, up to a, a woman who was 106 uh, years old come and speak to me about my book and, and how, how it, uh, the impact it had on them. And it, that, that was so beautiful. And we are in um, at humanity because of globalization, which is, I think, irreversible unless the universe decides to take matters in hand and and slow it all down. And I think with COVID that, that did slow the globalization down a bit. But we are all faced with those those um, questions more than ever before, I think, about what is meaningful in our lives. And in my life, <clears throat> certainly uh, Mehiao or Cree culture is, is a centerpiece of, of what's important to me increasingly actually as, as I get older and that and um, writing and music are uh, key elements and and I think for me it, it was you know a bit of escapism um, because I was feeling that I was getting absorbed into a culture that I didn't understand it isn't wasn't necessarily that I didn't like it there are many aspects of it that I did like. You know, I was living in an affluent part of Vancouver, um, teaching kids from affluent families, and I had been accepted by their parents and by the kids. They, they were wonderful and caring, and um, so were the teachers I worked with and the administrators and, and all of that. But And I had a partner at the time who was also wonderful and caring, but I just felt I was being swept into this lifestyle that I didn't completely relate to and and I wasn't sure where I would end up and I was so afraid of losing some of the aspects of life that had grounded me my culture Cree language 
my immediate family and my extended family because I'd lost touch with, with most of them and uh, lost touch. I mean, I hadn't been in touch with them for a number of years and hadn't been home, but hadn't been going home regularly. I'm back in touch, fortunately, with uh, my extended family and, and siblings. Um, but, you know, we're going to a place I dream of it. This won't happen in my lifetime. But I dream of a time when, you know, there, there will emerge eventually a Canadian race and a, a North American race with all the wonderful genetic blending we're having happening right now. And I see it as wonderful. Yeah. You know, I'm thrilled by the waves of immigration. And I think it's brought such richness to, to North America. And it's certainly enhanced my life. You know, I've had kindness um, from people of East Indian descent, from people from Chinese descent, people from African descent that I didn't ever experience before they started uh, migrating to Canada in, in larger numbers. And when I say um, kindness, I, I mean in really practical ways too. Um, in business, for example, in, at one point in my life, I was turned down by a mortgage by two lovely uh, white ladies worked at the <laughs> bank. And, you know, I had all of the reasons to be approved for a mortgage and I had been pre-approved by that same bank previously and I'd held a mortgage with them and I went across this so I was frustrated I went across the street to this other bank and there was this lovely um, woman of East, East Indian descent Canadian and she she still had she's maybe first generation um, and um, within half an hour I had a pre-approved mortgage for more than I needed and that's just one small example, you know, yeah. and then I did follow up with the original bank. And the, of course, the Western, the president for Western Canada ended up apologizing. Then they wanted to give me a mortgage and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, that's just one small example. But there will eventually be this race. And I hope that there's more um, cooperation between newcomers to North America and, well, even uh cultures that have been here for a few generations now i yeah. hope we can build more bridges with those cultures and indigenous culture because we need to support each other um indigenous people particularly with all that's going on right now i think we i'm only speaking from my own perspective but um i think we really need the support and the understanding and and the love from uh from newer populations that are have joined have come to north america well, and a lot of that that support and those things, I I too hope, believe, and hope that they will come about. And a lot of that will be thanks to a lot of the work that you personally have done, work that mm. you talk about in Piacau. And I wanted to talk to you about, there are so many, there, how many years, 30, 30 plus years you kind of cover in the book of your career at mm -hmm. that time. And there are so many things we could talk about, but I want everyone to go and read it. So there was one specifically <laughs> that really uh, stuck out to me. And I wanted to start by where you start the book in 1899 um, with the signing of Treaty 8. And then how, so you can tell us a little bit about that. And then also how that signing of that treaty and how it affected your people, that colonization and the genocide of the Cree population and how that incident led to the kind of work that you wanted to do and the work that you did end up doing and what doing it did for you and how it helped you reconcile those acts. Right. 
That's quite a big question, a, yes, a comprehensive a, question. Congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> well, very well formulated. Um, thank you. You know, I draft I'd, an earlier draft of Piagal, the manuscript, didn't have that first chapter about Treaty 8. But I have a very astute editor who's become a friend, and she felt there was a gap at the beginning. And she was right. And I did know and have in mind that I wanted to include a chapter of historical nonfiction mm -hmm. um, in my book, as I have, as I did in Mama Scotch, where I talked about my um, my mother and aunts uh, escaping from residential school as teenagers, um, and that was based on stories my mother had told me. So I knew I wanted to include historical fiction, nonfiction, I should say, and I knew it was valid to do that because I had researched it and talked to friends who are experts in that area and that, you know, we own the memories and the experiences of our of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. It's ours to work with and we, we live it, we embody it and we experience it, whether we want to or not. It's it's a key part, a central part of who we are. So I felt it was completely valid to write uh, the historical part. And for me, it was really important to start with Treaty 8 because that's where our world really got disrupted. I mean, it's a funny and bizarre history, even before the negotiation of Treaty 8, where a king in a remote land um, decided he wanted to own North America. So he got his team together, and I'm really simplifying this, but this really is <laughs> as simple as it was. Yeah. Got his team together of scribes and lawyers and whatever else and wrote a declaration that North America was his. And then just with his official steel, a seal, and well, that's a good and slip steel. of the tongue. Yes. His official seal, North America was his. But then he didn't know what to do with it. And he had a distant cousin named Rupert, who was a prince in Germany who was, you know, languishing and unpopular with his family in Germany. Prince Rupert came to visit and the king decided to give him North America for a birthday present. So he did. So we had 200 years of Rupert's land um, where North America was basically administered by a board of uh, directors in England. There, It wasn't created as a country or established as a country with a constitution and laws. It was just governed as an enterprise for 200 years. And that didn't disrupt our, our uh, culture and community and people too much because the numbers of uh, newcomers were small still at that point and they basically got integrated and assimilated into Cree culture which was really neat um, and they just wanted to make some money they didn't want to usurp the land at that stage the Hudson's Bay Company and the fur traders and all, all that but then the gold rush happened in the late 1800s mid 1800s and that was very invasive and intrusive and so these people came up from from the south um, of north southern part of North America and kind of invaded Canada and there was no rule of law nothing to control it or even though it was really an illegal act um, and so there was just lawlessness violence and incredible disruption on all the main waterways where the gold rush uh, the the prospectors were were advancing and um, so the government of Canada realized they had to do something and so Treaty 8 was negotiated for all the wrong reasons really it was negotiated to usurp the land from the people and open open up the West for exploration, for mineral exploration. And at about the same time, you know, it was, it was more subtle, 
than the gold rush, but there was an increasing awareness of the oil industry, the petroleum industry. And unfortunately, um, where I'm from is one of the um, richest spots in North America for, for oil and gas. And so that, that was kind of underlying it all too. So basically this commission um, appointed by the federal government in 1899 finally made an appearance. They made it to where my people are from, uh, northern, sort of central to northern Alberta, and uh, imposed this treaty that they had written in advance. Um, it took two days. It was two days of meetings. And, uh, you know, and there were linguistic problems. There had to be linguistic problems. I read the diaries, uh, the notes, the journals of uh, some of the commissioners and some of the lay people who were on the trip and even of some of the religious people because the church accompanied the state on this trip to help convince uh, the, the, the savages that they should sign on to this treaty. And um, so um, that is when the disruption really started. The 200 years of Rupert's Land, yeah, I mean, there was trading and it did change our culture, culture a bit introduced alcohol and um, more Western foods. But um, the Treaty 8, we, with the advent of Treaty 8, we, we were forced onto reserves. Uh, some, some families were forced onto reserves. Others were promised lands that would be held in, was called held in severalty, a joint ownership type of situation. Um, some, some families got reserve lands, some got lands in severalty, many families got nothing. They kind of fell between the, the, the cracks of those two mechanisms that the government was going to use. And many were forcefully relocated. And that was the case with my family. We were forcefully relocated. And that's where the incredible, that's why I say um, where I'm from, colonization was rapid and brutal. Because that isn't that long ago. 1899, in the big no. scheme of things, isn't that long ago. No. And uh, we're still kind of getting our bearings in terms of... Um, for example, my, people would ask me, well, your mother's generation, based on what they read in Mama Scotch and other stories that they had heard, um, well, why didn't your mother and your aunts and other relatives go for counseling? And first of all, it wasn't available at the time. <laughs> yeah. Secondly, the disruption was so rapid and so massive that everybody was you know, traumatized. Everybody was suffering from what we call post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. It was normal then everybody was suffering and screwed up and and injured and damaged and uh, confused and trying to make sense of the world because the disruption was so so quick um so i really wanted and people unfortunately a lot there hasn't been a lot of education about indigenous issues in the schools in of north america at any level mm -hmm. primary intermediate high school or college or university level and so people don't understand that they think that this is ancient history why are we still going on about it you know why are we still even talking about it? that happened hundreds of years ago and that involved our far far gone ants our long our distant distant ancestors yeah but that isn't the case you know um it was recent and you mentioned uh the stories that your mother told you about the schools which was the sort of one example that i wanted to have you talk to me about was your work in uh oh right yes 
as a in the federal treaty office um, right yes in the late 90s because when you were working specifically um on a modern treaty and land claim with the new channel people and at the start you believed that there wouldn't be any meaningful concessions made about the legacy of the residential schools there it wasn't supposed to really be a part of that process. Um, and then it sort of became a very big part of that process. And the reason I wanted to talk about this specific example and part of your career was that apology that you listed in full in the book that was did end up getting read by the Canadian government in 2000 was, I, I think I read it maybe three or four times. <laughs> because and your examples as you broke it up, about people's reactions in the room when they heard it for the first time and the impact that it had on people um, because no apology like that had ever been written. You didn't expect any sort of apology like that. Um, no one had ever taken accountability on that scale. And you wondered then also, if anything, what, what might it change in the grand scheme of things? Um, and so I wanted you to talk a little bit about that experience. Uh, and it did last almost 20 years, that whole process from the start of that treaty negotiation to the final appeal, which also ended with a conservative government in Canada wiping out a lot of that progress. Um, and so if you could tell us a little bit about your, your time there and that part of your career, and then I have another follow-up question about it too. Sure, that links to sort of the last part of your, your previous question. Um, my experience is that I wasn't trained, to, I was trained as an educator and I thought I'd be an educator my whole life and I love that field. Uh, but um, I was recruited by the federal government to work on treaties. Um, sort of fairly early in my career. And that perspective, so I had to study, you know, on my own uh, Canadian government policy all the historical aspects of the treaties that had been in that there's a their historic treaties numbered treaties and peace and friendship treaties I had to learn about all of that not only in British Columbia but in the whole country and so I just immersed myself in information about all of those things and it gave me a phenomenal perspective and then meeting face to face with the new channels people who had never negotiated a treaty most of British Columbia isn't uh, hasn't been uh, the, the indigenous rights haven't been settled here um, and because British Columbia came into confederation under false pretenses, but that's a whole other story <laughs> that yeah. will come out in the future. Um, but it made me look, it, it, it was kind of like holding up a mirror to me to be faced with all this. So I studied the history of Treaty 8 as part of all my other work. And I got to see how, I mean, the, the document itself, when I, I got it, I may ask, I remember sending a note to some, one of my claim analysts to get me a copy of Treaty 8. <laughs> so I get it and it's like one page. I was going to say, I'm sure what? it was like one page. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, maybe it was two pages, but um, it was, I was just uh, gobsmacked. Yeah. But then it made me dig a little bit further into the history of the negotiation of Treaty 8 and I saw how unjust and, and, and then when I researched specifically for Pia Gao. I put down my pen for six months and just researched the historical context to dig even, delve even deeper into the history of, of Treaty 8. But 
working in that context, working deliberately within the federal government, and I chose that deliberately, it was part of my strategy for my career, was to work at the local level in schools and the universities, colleges, and then work at the government level for the provincial government, then work at the federal level, and then go work for First Nations governments, which is kind of how it all unfolded. And when I was in the federal government, I just learned so much about how the federal system works. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I was able to um, stay in the job once I learned uh, the context and what the, the the negotiating mandate was of the federal government. Um, there was a deal that had been negotiated, uh, was almost concluded uh, just before I went to work with the federal government, and that was the NISCA final agreement, which I ended up helping to translate, bringing the translation for that one to completion. Um, and the NISCA treaty, I thought, was a very good deal it, for everyone all around. And in part, it's, it's credit. The, the NISCA people deserve credit because they were tough negotiators. My, yeah. And they should have been because they waited 100 years uh, for their for the negotiations to start. Yeah. And uh, they were brilliant strategists. But um, once I was there, I realized in, in government, and I really do believe that Indigenous people should um, work in government at all levels, um, including being, you know, politicians and ministers uh, with or in, in the case of the United States secretaries with full and important portfolios, like your Secretary of the Interior right now. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful and remarkable. I think it's Deb Holland? I believe so, yes. Yeah, uh, that's phenomenal. And we need more of that throughout, you know, to to help us impact what happens to, to our people in, in the future. But um, I thought there could be a, a fair deal for other tribes. And I listened to the New Channel people who are brilliant, um, um, strategic uh, negotiators and still warriors. They're phenomenal. I learned so much from them. But to listen to their vision of where they wanted to go, where they wanted to take their communities and what they wanted their lives to be was so enlightening. Um, and of course, I had to, I listened to the residential school experiences of many survivors, which brought me right back to my mother's story, you know, mm -hmm. um, However, uh, you know, I did think we could get a good deal with the new child. However, uh, within government, there's a very conservative element within the bureaucracy. This is before uh, Stephen Harper's government, a conservative government took over. Even under a liberal government the or a more democratic style government, um, the bureaucracy is incredibly conservative. And, you know, we would negotiate, you know, put all of our energy on all sides of the table to negotiate a meaningful deal. And that was always within our mandate mm -hmm. um, that we were the things we were allowed to, the extent we were allowed to go um, to make concessions. And um, but the conservative individuals within the federal government weren't even senior officials, really. They were medium level officials, which is block things and make it impossible to get a deal done. And so that stalled the process long enough until a conservative government took over and and they couldn't they didn't dare shut down the process, but they just made it clear that there weren't going to be any deals while they were in power. And no deals really happened for the eight yeah. years that conservative government was in power. And the the last part of that story that you talk about is the 
your sort of new understanding of the word or the phrase vicarious liability. Right. Um, which I then, I, I looked up and then I went back through that chapter and thought about it again. And I felt like it was just such a, it was, it felt like a heartbreaking take uh, and an idea to, for you to walk away from that experience with um, after the time and work that went into it and your position as a indigenous Cree person in that field that you were working in, I felt like after you kind of had that realization, that idea of being a, a vicarious participant in those situations may have colored a lot of how you felt you moved through that space. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, so we negotiated, as strange as it sounds, uh, the apology, the, the, and it was a profound, mm -hmm. uh, heartfelt, gut-wrenching apology, which was far more than I'd ever expected to achieve. Um, and again, full credit to the New Channeled people because uh, they knew how to, to get that through. And um, they knew how to uh, lobby the minister effectively and work existing political levers to make sure that um, their voices were heard at the highest levels of government and that helped get it through. Um, but, um, you know, I, I went through that process and I write about this dramatic day where I went to a, a meeting in Nanaimo, this beautiful town just north of here, north of where I am right now in British Columbia, and um, got this surprise from the, the chiefs, the New Channel chiefs. They were angry and usually they were, they were quite uh, kind to me, even though we had difficult work and difficult situations, they were usually very um, conciliatory and, and they knew I was on, on, I was working to get the best deal I could for them mm -hmm. and they appreciated it. But a private detective had been snooping around at their community and in, interviewed a former school principal who was a great friends with the New Channel people. And the private eye just assumed because he was a white guy that he would divulge anything he knew. And unfortunately, they weren't looking, um, they weren't questioning uh, survivors of the residential school and former staff of the residential school to try to uh, bring justice to any wrongs that had been done there, to any crimes that had been committed. They were trying to limit the government's liability in a court case that was running concurrent with our negotiations. And so our negotiations concluded with that stunning apology which I think is one of the um, milestones of my career. Um, and then six years later, I find out that the same lawyer who worked on that apology was representing the federal government in the court case. And I was really disappointed by the, I was happy with the outcome of the court case. Uh, the plaintiffs were found to have complete uh, credibility and uh, they won their case, but they were awarded relatively not, small amounts yeah, not enough money but the and recognition they had to pay their own legal, yeah yeah they had to pay their own legal costs and so i felt betrayed 
that um, I think there's at least was at least a moral obligation on the part of the Department of Justice and the lawyer to tell us that they were using the same team yeah. in a legal battle that they were using uh, to negotiate. And so I felt used and what it did for me, I took that as a learning experience. So it made me much more cynical when negotiating deals to always kind of look for ulterior motives yeah. and try to get, understand and grasp the larger context, particularly when dealing with government. Yeah. And that that cynicism and uh, and then I'm going to try and weave this into another question, but the cynicism and the the pressure and stress and just kind of like weight that that kind of career in those positions that you were working in put on you along with, um, as you've talked about, just generational ancestral trauma and stress from the events of 1899 and before and after and throughout this entire time has led you to learn how to take care of yourself and how to move through the world in a way that is satisfactory for you and that helps you to continue to grow and do the work that you're doing. And one of the things that I also found as a universal thing, and it's also something I have heard in therapy or it's similar, is when you said that the therapist you saw told you that you have an incredible drive to be healthy and a strong will to live a vibrant life. Um, and the similar phrasing of it in the therapy I've done is finding ways to live a life worth living. Mm. Um, and so I saw a connection there and I appreciated and loved seeing that. And I wondered how it felt for you to have that validation and recognition in that statement, what it felt like to hear that, um, and how it affected that the choices you made after hearing that and how it helped you move forward. Right, well, that's a, another excellent question. Um, the therapist that I, I was seeing at the time, I, I was in a, kind of a low in my life. Um, I'd run into some career challenges. I was working at a university slash college and um, put in a leadership position uh, over a team of non-Indigenous people. Um, even though our client group was intended to be Indigenous, uh, the whole staff of the place was non-Indigenous, and I set about turning that around, and um, so I got a lot of back uh, pushback from people. So I was at a low point, and I, I went for counseling, and the counselor, that, that wee bit of validation that he was able to see in me that spark or that seed of something that wanted to grow into uh, a healthy, vibrant being, was was wonderfully validating. It was like he took this little seed that was, you know, kind of languishing and gave it some water and some nutrition and helped it to 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 blossom. And and I've hung on to those words ever since. Yeah. You know, anytime I've hit a, a kind of a low point. And you know, the cynicism I talked about earlier is a really healthy. It's part of that healthy health healthy um, outlook and vibrancy because you learn how to sift through things and you learn to recognize what's good and what's not good. Absolutely. And you also just learn to speak your truth, to tell it like it is. You know, um, in so many situations, you know, in conversations and people are so politically correct and, and polite, even though there's, there's so much that goes unsaid that 
probably should be said. Yeah. And so I'm learning to speak the truth in any context and just tell it like it is and, and cut through, you know, a lot of the nonsense. And um, that is healthy. Yeah. And now that this chapter of your life has been written um, and as a sequel to Mama Sketch, I'm hopeful that there is another story to tell. There's more story to tell. Um, and that you're going to continue writing. I just wanted to like briefly ask if you had, if you have a plan to continue recording the arc of your life and the amazing accomplishments that you have had throughout your your time on this earth, because seeing that, you know, Mama Sketch is a coming of age and then you pick back up here at this part of your career, you are recording the past now. And I was curious if you're continuing to write and what you think about how how that will sort of transform once you catch up to the present and right. if you are recording the present now or how that kind of process is working for you right well i do something that i recommend everybody do and that's i keep a journal mm -hmm. and i started it as a healing mechanism uh there's a wonderful book called the artist's way yeah and it talks about a journaling process in there that's just wonderful so i i do that and um, related to your question about what's next and am I going to continue writing about my life, a, a dear friend of mine asked me that uh, a couple of months ago and I said, well, I think I have to do a little bit more living first <laughs> <laughs> before I write another memoir that is. Yeah. Um, although, um, as people who've listened to me talk about the what's happened since Mama Scotch would, would say uh, or know, um, so much has happened since the release mm -hmm. of Mama Scotch in 2018 that I could write a book just about that, that. the reconciliation, etc. But I, I am, I'm, I'm, I've been bitten by the the bug of writing and and music, mm -hmm. the creative bug, and it it won't let go of me. I don't know how long this phase of my life is going to last, but I just had a meeting with my agent uh, from Toronto um, via Zoom a couple of weeks ago to talk about my writing plan because I want to work differently. I have a few mentors who I'm inspired by. Mm -hmm. And one of my mentors, Caroline Adderson, um, works on about four projects at a time or maybe more. And she shifts between them. So she's usually writing a children's book. She's writing adult fiction. She might be writing a short story collection and recipe books. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to my agent about what I'm going to be working on. And so I have a, I just sold the rights to my first novel in Exciting. english for north america yeah um, and it's based i mean the premise is the young man who goes young cree man who goes from being a teacher in an affluent part of vancouver to living on an indian reserve and so the premise is taken from the chapter called yakuche in the book mm -hmm. but that's i just borrowed the premise the rest is fictionalized and yeah. it's it's quite um dramatic and um, a wonderful story arc but um, I'm also going to work on a nonfiction book about Indigenous rights mm -hmm. in North America and maybe a bit beyond North America. And there's just a little side I wanted to say that I, I think you may have picked up um, on me talking about North America and not talking about Canada and the United yeah. States. And it's part of the work that, you know, uh, in the research of Pia Gao and also from what I know about the legal lay of the land, um, and the history of North America that, you know, I, I'm 
dreaming of a time, and I, I like to go back to a time when the 49th parallel didn't constitute an international border that constrained Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And the United States uh, respects a treaty called the Jay Treaty, where Indigenous Canadians have rights in the United States to work and live, mm -hmm. um, which is just wonderful. But Canada doesn't reciprocate and won't allow Indigenous Americans. But I, I, I dream about that. So I, and I, I want to write about a bit more about that. And when I was, I was invited to travel in Indonesia uh, on a tour from Amaskach, in, uh, not Indonesia, pardon me, Malaysia and Thailand. And um, it was the, the embassies of those, the Canadian embassies in those two countries who organized the tours. And in addition to the writing events, the writing and reading events, they had me meet with local Indigenous communities, leaders and uh, analysts and just the people. And I was astonished that, you know, it was a sideline in the tour, so I didn't spend mm -hmm. a lot of time and effort preparing for it because I just didn't have the time. Yeah. Um, and I was astonished how I could go on, um, you know, for an hour or two talking about Indigenous rights in North America without any prep mm -hmm. or without any notes and, and hold people's attention. Like, they were intrigued by everything I had to say. Yeah. And so... I have to write about that. I absolutely have to write about that. And then from my teaching career, I want to write some children's books as I, I love teaching kids and yeah. I, I still, there, there are hope and youth, by the way, are, I think are our hope for the future. Um, I see so many young people who don't have the buy the built in biases that people my age have been socialized into believing, um, with racism and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and religion and, dogma, that sort of thing. So young people who hope for the future. So children's books. And I want to work on a recipe book too, because a, a, one of my very good friends is a Cordon Bleu chef. I think I write about her. Uh -huh. My friend Leah. Yes. We're still close friends. And we've dreamed about opening a place together. But now I'm dreaming about us writing a recipe book together. And I might uh, apply for a grant for us to do that. That would be so wonderful. That's the writing plan for the future. Those four or five things. Yeah so many things to look forward to and you you mentioned it a little bit and it was how I want I thought about starting with this because you start with it but then I decided to move it to the end which was uh John Fire Lame Deer's quote oh, yeah. love is something that you can leave behind you when you die it is that powerful and I I loved starting pay a cow with that mindset um and so i was going to start talking with you about it and then mm. as i was getting myself situated i was like you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna end with it um yeah. and i i loved that uh very much and it was very much a through line uh through the book itself and i don't know if you have any story about it in particular or how it became meaningful for you the first time you heard it um but I thought we could mm -hmm. end there. Well, it's a beautiful way to end. And um, you've conducted a great interview, by the way, just phenomenal. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And um, that, um, when I read that quote, it just spoke to me so profoundly because um, that dynamic is what has kept me going. You know, the love of my great grandfather, Mosham, who lived until I was about nine, um, his phenomenal, powerful love stays with me to to this day and the, the same for the love of my mother and my father my great aunt helen you know who um 
I read she led the escape from the residential school in a mm -hmm. chapter of Mama Scotch. Her beautiful, powerful love, my great grandmother, um, their love has, has stayed with me and buoyed me up and carried me through this difficult uh, life that has been difficult in so many ways. And, you know, when I write about living in exile in um, the first, the opening part of the book, I wasn't trying to be dramatic. Um, it's the truth. Yeah. You know, that that land where I was born and raised is idyllic and is a special place in my mind. And for many years up until I was in my mid-30s, I used to dream about going back and dream about buying back sections of that land. So, but, you know, like I also said in that chapter, unfortunately, the land is not the land it was when I was there. It's the hub of the oil and gas industry in Canada. The Athabasca oil sands are right by there. So the land is transversed by, you know, uh, pipelines and compressor stations and pump jacks. Fortunately, that is being turned around a little bit, but not enough. But that quote, um, I, I want I put it in there too, because I, at the beginning of the book, uh, because it's the only powerful statement like that I've ever heard about love carrying on through generations in and not in some nostalgic kind of romantic way but in a powerful meaningful uh substantial way it's um, it, it, it's a statement that has life in it you yeah can, you can feel that it has it has agency to it absolutely it really really does yeah well Thank you again to Daryl J. McLeod for taking the time to talk to me today about Pia Cow and so many other wonderful, important things that we all need to take more time to learn and read about. And thankfully, Daryl has a plan to help us with that, <laughs> to continue writing for us. And you can order your very own copy of Pia Cow at www.skylightbooks.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.